0: Turn, if you would, in your Bibles or your bulletins to John, John chapter 20. We'll be in John 20, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Let's pray before we read God's Word. Our Father, we know that every every week is, is, in a sense, Resurrection Sunday, but Lord, on this special day of celebration of the resurrection of, of Christ, we want to express to you our gratitude. Thank you for raising the Son, for our justification, for our confidence in the day of judgment, and our certain hope of the resurrection of ourselves. Uh, your kindness is, is beyond measure to us. So as we look to your word this morning, we, we're in awe that you would allow us even 2,000 late, years later to, to know your Son through your word. May we not set him aside as a relic of history this morning, and neither let us craft him anew around our own desires of our own hearts, but give us faith in in the true historical resurrection, Lord, uh, the Jesus of Scripture. It's in his name, and because he sits before you now, that we ask these things. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. and he saw and believed. Whereas yet they did not understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead. This is God's word. He may be seated. So Cohen lately has been kind of obsessed with this idea of whether or not something is in real life, like a, a video. Is this a recording or is this in real life? Is is this something somebody made up or is this a real life person? So he will always ask that, is this real life? And when we read uh, the Apostles' Creed, we read, you know, that Pilate, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? And that's not just throwing Pontius Pilate under the bus, but it's to say, this whole event is something that happened in space in history. That this is an actual historical event. So Pilate was in real life, and that's what we were reading the other day, some devotionals for uh, that kind of go through the, the whole resurrection story, and that's what Cohen all of a sudden started to be very passionate about, this Pilate was in real life, Pilate was in real life, and I don't know who told him that, but he was very sincere, Pilate is in real life, and I said, yes, he is, that's very true. Even the world recognizes that Jesus was a person in real life. Very, very few people deny that this man, Jesus, existed. And it's pretty much universally recognized that uh, there was a man named Jesus who lived, who was crucified under the Romans, and that his tomb was empty. Around the beginning of the 20th century, people tried to begin to identify who is this historical Jesus? What, what, who is he? What was he like? And, and they went on several quests to find the historical Jesus. They were seeking to know the Jesus of history, but they were seeking to divorce the Jesus of history from the Jesus of faith or the Jesus of Scripture. They they, they wanted because they recognized that Scripture is theological. They wanted to divorce the historical Jesus from the theological traditions found in Scripture or apart from the sensationalist, sensationalist miracles of Scripture, because the undergirding principle was. Nat, uh, naturalism or, or relativism—this idea that miracles don't happen—so those things are false in Scripture. But there's clearly this this Jesus person. He did shake up the world, so we need to identify who he really was, according to history, what he really taught, what he really believed. Now out of this same sort of interest for the quest for the historical Jesus came this thing called the, the Jesus Seminar, and kind of laugh about it. This actually happened. Um, but this group of scholars got together and they looked at the four canonical gospels and also the gospel of Thomas. And they kind of went through and they, they voted on the things that Jesus said and did. Did Jesus really say this or did he not? And they had a system of beads that they would put like in a jar or something. And so they'd go through line by line and, and determine. So red beads were that he did say that or something very much like that. Pink is he probably said it. Gray meant that they thought he didn't say it, but it, it kind of contained Jesus' ideas. And then black, that he didn't say it, but, but later tradition inserted it into these Gospels. So in the end, they decided 18% of the sayings of Jesus were real historical sayings, and 16% of the deeds were historical deeds of the historical Jesus. So what, what is our reaction to something like that, I mean most of us probably to just laugh, right I mean the, the bead voting it 's kind of absurd, or we may take offense at something like that. I think the response of a lot of Christians is to, to take up the song. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Um, scholar Andreas Kostenberger has pointed out about this quest for historical Jesus people that. When they would construct the historical Jesus, he would bear a striking resemblance to the people who were creating this historical Jesus. The scary thing, though, is that that Christians run afoul of the same problem. This, This idea, you ask me how he knows, I know he lives, he lives within my heart. This Jesus of our heart mysteriously begins to take on characteristics which bear a striking resemblance to me. So what do we do about this? How do we strike the balance between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of personal faith? That's the question for this morning. The answer is, this may sound strange, there are three Jesuses to be known. The Jesus of history, the Jesus of faith, and the Jesus of scripture. But the truth is, those three Jesuses are all the same Jesus. There is one Jesus. The Jesus of history is the Jesus that we know through the pages of Scripture. And this same historical Jesus is the Jesus of genuine saving faith. Because saving faith is found in Jesus who exists outside of the confines of our own imaginations. He's a historical figure. But at the same time, if he is a historical figure, we have to do something with him, the things he has done and the things that he said. We can believe that there was a historical Jesus, but in order to find salvation in his name, we must also have faith in this historical Jesus. Now, if all of this seems rather insignificant to you, um, uh, consider John's word from later on in this chapter. He says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is a life and death issue what we believe about jesus is a life and death issue we must have faith in the jesus of history whom god raised from the dead and and this is the jesus we find in scripture so as john recounts his story here for us this morning of the empty tomb he wants us to understand that this event actually happened in history to the effect that we believe and have life in the name of jesus So let's look at his, his account here. Um, and the first thing he begins with is we, we need to understand that this is an eyewitness testimony. He's speaking of eyewitness testimony here. And it's, it's interesting. The Apostle John is known for his lofty theological discourses. You know, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very philosophical. Here we have a very raw human story from this man who just witnessed it. So this is an eyewitness account. Um, I have a friend who told me a story of a a young man who who died. And and, um, there was a missionary from, I forget where, somewhere in the east. And he came home and, and offered to pray for this young man who died to try to raise him from the dead. The father hesitated about this whole idea and he had his son embalmed. And finally the missionary was allowed into the mortuary and after some Prayer, the, the body began to shake and move. And in the end, it was decided he'd been dead too long. He was embalmed. This wasn't going to happen. The embalming process it, it, it inhibited him from coming back to life. Now, of course, the father gets the blame for this because he didn't have the faith right in the beginning. But, but what i what what am I to make of this story? Did this even happen? Is this even true? I don't know if it's true. I can't prove it's not true. Just like I can't prove it's not true that there's a white ape that runs around the Himalayas, right? There's no way to disprove it. But what would it take to convince me that the story is true? It would take some form of evidence, correct? You know, maybe if it was done in, in public... If I could talk or, or read the account of a trustworthy eyewitness of the event or or ideally multiple eyewitnesses of the event and compare their stories. Because these types of stories always come from us to us in, in these dark corners of mortuaries or the deep dark depths of, of jungles. They're never done in public. The resurrection of Jesus and all of his other miracles for that matter were public events. They were verifiable public events. We have four testimonies of the resurrection in the Bible and we can compare and contrast them. Um, I have a, a book, it's, it's the synopsis of the four gospels and you can read all four tabulated side by side and it's very interesting because there's some weird things that that, that doesn't compare, that doesn't make sense. But as you go through it, you can start to see, oh, oh okay, you can start to put together a, a timeline in a story and it actually all does uh, mesh very well together. And, and the reality is, just like in real life, if you were to interview people, um, if, if it's fake, it's all going to be the same. It's all going to be rehearsed. Each story is going to be rehearsed. But it's not rehearsed with the Gospels. They're genuinely different perspectives of the same event, all in accord with one another. Also, Paul says to the Corinthian church, you, you can verify for yourself that Jesus is raised from the dead because there's 500 people who have saw him alive, and you can go talk to them. Most of them are still alive, he says. So no one's afraid that, 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 that this is not going to be um, verified. And eyewitness testimony is accepted in, in the court of law all the time, and even more importantly for our topic, as we read history. We believe eyewitness testimony when we read history. None of us was alive during the Civil War, but we don't deny the, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We accept the records of historians and we can compare and contrast them and find general agreement about what happened. And we might add, no civil war history was ever God breathed. So, John's story is the story of a man who experienced the resurrection firsthand and he recorded his experience for our benefit. So, what is John's testimony and why is it convincing to us? Um, first of all, notice the unlikely nature of his story. If he was crafting this story you know, from his own imagination, he would not have chosen this story, I don't think. The first thing we notice is that Mary Magdalene is the very first witness. This was in a day when, when women were not highly regarded. In the other Gospels, they, the women go to the disciples, and the, the disciples think they're telling just vain tales. They think they're making it up. And Mary herself was someone whom Jesus had casted out seven demons. And, and it's very possible she was the prostitute who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and, and perfume. This was not a star witness, if you will. This is not someone you would choose, but this is the story that happened. Also consider John's unflattering confession of his own belief and confusion regarding the resurrection of Jesus. He says in verses 8 and 9, Then the other disciple, that's John is the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he might rise from the dead. If I was one of the disciples of Jesus, if I was going to try to deceive the world that Jesus rose from the dead, I would, I would take a different tack. I, w- I would assemble all the evidence, and I would say, see, look, he told us, the Old Testament told us, we knew it all along, Right? But John isn't trying to paint himself in a good light. He's retelling the story as it happened from his own perspective. Which leads us to the next thing I want us to see from the story is that it's a very human story. You get the personalities of the people involved, Peter and John specifically. Peter's a guy who never does anything halfway. And he seems to kind of be this act first, think later type of character. And and if you remember the story of after Jesus was raised from the dead and and, uh, they're out fishing all night, they don't catch anything, there's this man on the shore, you know, put your nets on the other side of the boat. So they do, they catch a whole bunch of fish and and then it hits John, he's like, that's the Lord. (laughs) And the, the words are no sooner out of his mouth than Peter is in the water and leaving the other guys to row back to shore. Here in our story today, you have to think after, the re- after his denial of Jesus and after the crucifixion, he was swimming in a sea of guilt and, and confusion after those events. So when Mary tells him these things, i, I got to think he just kind of didn't think. He just jumped up and ran out of the room. And John, not to be outdone by Peter, takes off after. Him. John includes this funny little detail. He says, both were running, but the other disciple, me, beat Peter. I, I won. I won the race. Of course, we know that John was the youngest disciple, so he had an advantage. But when they arrive at the tomb, John stops and he kind of looks in. But of course, Peter doesn't do anything halfway. He right into the tomb. We see a picture of the personalities of these men. We, we get the details of the memory of John. That's what we see here, some more details. So John saw the linen cloths from the outside. He saw them laying there. And then Peter went in and saw the linen cloths and the face cloths. And, and listened to this strange detail in verse 7. The face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now think about that for a moment. If, if you were going to steal a body, would you unwrap the body, carry it out naked? I mean, I, I want as many barriers between me and the body as I can. I'm bringing extra body bags because that's gross. No one would do that. Also, if you were going to do that, would you take the face cloth and fold it up neatly and set it to the side? I mean, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody would do that, but nobody would do that. So you get these details that kind of show that that this is just so outlandish that it has to be true. It's striking to me John with, again, all of his high theology at this climactic event includes a woman's report to him, a race to the tomb, and this faith's cloth. That, that's the resurrection for John. But that's John's testimony of what happened the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's showing quite intentionally the historical fact of an empty tomb. It's not a gimmick. It's not a well-crafted tale. It's not an allegory. <coughs> it's historical reality. <coughs> John was there, and he experienced what had to have been the strangest, most confusing, exciting, and bizarre days of his entire life. And he relates that to us, and he means for us to understand that this is a historical event, and this was a historical Jesus. So, when we worship Jesus, we, we, we don't worship the fabrication of our own sinful desires, we worship the risen Christ who actually rose from the dead, this man who was crucified, lost an extraordinarily large amount of blood, <laughs> uh, presumably underwent rigor mortis. He was dead, dead. And that Sunday morning, his soul was rejoined with his dead body, and his heart began to beat, and his blood began to flow, and he sat up, and he took off the face cloth, and he folded it and set it aside, and he walked out of the tomb. This is the Jesus that we worship every Sunday. So when we approach, it, uh, approach the worship of Christ, the way we feel, the degree of spiritual energy in the room, at the moment, the, the mood or the atmosphere, these things shouldn't be of primary concern to us. The question is, are we worshiping the historical risen Lord? The object of our faith is not the way we feel about Jesus, but Jesus himself. His very person and the works he's accomplished and he's continuing to accomplish and he will accomplish. Without the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, nothing else matters. It it all stands or falls on that one historical event. Christianity is not founded on personal experience but on historical events. So I thought of this analogy and I hope I hope it's appropriate, but it, it makes sense to me that faith is a bit like a, a grasshopper jumping. So When a grasshopper jumps, he's propelled forward. He's propelled upward. But if you grab him, he, he can kick his little legs all he wants, and he can't get anywhere. He has to have a hard surface to jump off of. The energy he exerts on the ground underneath his feet is the thing that enables him to become airborne. In the same way, faith is a forward-looking Thing. It looks forward, but it's the assurance of things um, from the past that that, that gives us solid ground to leap from. Romans one four says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection of the dead. Without the historical resurrection or the historical Jesus, we have no confidence and nothing to look forward to. No faith to be propelled toward. Without the historical resurrection, we have no one with all authority in heaven and on earth given to me to be with us to the end of the age. We have no one to intercede for us before the Father. We have no confidence in future and final justice. We have no hope of our resurrection or our glorified bodies or eternal life. All we have is a dead teacher who claimed he would rise from the dead and didn't and claimed to be the Son of God, and clearly was not. All our affections and all our worship rests on a pile of bones in a cold, dark hole in a rock. But if he is raised, our faith and all that warmth of Christian experience and all our affections rest on a real, living person who proved that he is who he said he was and did what he came to do and accomplish. So the the, the historical resurrection is... In a major way, the linchpin of our Christian faith, now, it is faith that I would like to turn our attention to next. Now, there's this fascinating sort of progression in the disciples I think as you as you look through the Gospels of their faith in Jesus, for example, in the beginning of John, Nathaniel calls Jesus the Son of God, King of Israel, when he curses the fig tree and it actually dies. whoa. You know, he's the son of God. And later it says, John says that the disciples believed in Jesus when he did his first miracle. When he turned water into wine. Then later when the crowds left Jesus in John 6, he asked them, do you want to go as well? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Later in John 16, the, the disciples tell Jesus, Now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? You see this progression of belief in the disciples. Then, here in verse 8 in our passage, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and he believed. So they believed before. But they continued to grow in their belief. The disciples didn't have perfect faith. Their faith grew with time. And they didn't walk away from Jesus. See, the crowds followed Jesus because he gave them food. And he spoke hard sayings to them, they left. When they found out there was no more food, they left. It's also amazing to me that the story... Um, the unbelief of the mob who came to arrest Jesus. They came to arrest him. They and, and Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am he. I am Jesus. And they all fall down flat on the ground. And then Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and he heals it right there. People always say, give me a sign and then I'll believe. Maybe if I was John and I saw it with my own two eyes, then I would believe. But we have an example right here that's clearly not true. That the people who saw Jesus multiply bread and fish Saw it with their own two eyes, but they left, and they realized there was no more food. Or when Jesus blew a few hundred men to the ground with a few words, or healed an ear just by touching it, they arrested him and crucified him anyways. They didn't believe, even though they saw the miracles with their own two eyes. So it's not enough to simply believe that a historical Jesus existed, and it's not even enough to believe that Jesus could do miracles. When we do make an encounter with the Jesus of history, we have to do something with him. And this is where the rubber meets the road with Jesus. Again, verse 21 of chapter 20, or 31, I believe. Uh, But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing may have life in his name. The implication being we already stand condemned. The, The sentence of death is already hung around our necks and belief Brings to life dead bones. Unbelief brings death because those who do not believe are condemned already, and our own righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So we need the righteousness of another, and that righteousness can only come through faith. This is what we learn in Romans four, twenty-two through twenty-five. That is why he that is, or why his um, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So by believing we may have life in his name. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of Christ credited to our account to have Christianity, we must have the historical Jesus. We we must also have faith in that Jesus, that he will save us from our sins, believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead so that we may be saved. And we get a sense in verse 9 of the source of John's faith, the foundation of his faith. In verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must, be ra- must rise from the dead. So there's a question, in, in, an interpretive question here. Is did he, what did he believe when he saw this, the, the, the clause? Did he believe that Mary was telling the truth? Well, that doesn't align with verse 9 very well because it explains why he said that. Because he didn't understand the scripture yet. And we see, in fact, in John chapter 2, when Jesus says, you know, they're going to destroy the temple in three days, but I will raise it up again. It says that he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So the scriptures are of ultimate authority. Even for Jesus, scripture was always authoritative, and they foretold the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. For example, we read Psalm 16 for a call to worship. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your holy one see corruption. And in Isaiah fifty-three, we read of the wonderful saving work of Jesus, and he says, therefore I will divide with for him a portion with the many. And he says he makes intercession for transgressors. Well, you don't divide a portion with a dead person, and nor does a dead person provide intercession for transgressors the scripture predicted jesus resurrection calvin says in short we ought to believe that the doctrine of scripture is so full and complete in every respect that whatever is defective in our faith ought justly be attributed to the ignorance of the scriptures this is true the scriptures contain all that we need to know about god rightly to to know his will to know his plan of salvation we will apply the time, apply the patience, apply the diligence to study and know them. We will find Christ and we'll find Christ to be wholly satisfying in the scriptures. It was sufficient for the first century the, the temptation of Jesus surrounded the scriptures. They, the devil and Jesus were arguing about the scriptures. And when Jesus rebuked Nicodemus, he rebuked him for not knowing the scriptures. And Paul exhorted Timothy to know the scriptures which were able to make him wise for salvation those were the old testament scriptures but how much more now do we have the opportunity to know god through the scriptures i think one of the reasons we see the disciples struggling and battling with their faith and growing in faith is that jesus was training them up and he was training them up for a specific purpose he was training ambassadors The apostle John, for example, who saw the linen clause here, he wrote five of the canonical books of the New Testament. And in first John, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says, that's what we proclaim to you. The things that we saw and the things that we heard. So we don't need to see the tomb and the linens for ourselves because the apostles have seen the risen Christ. And they've written it all down for us. And, and here's an important point about that, is it's not only that they wrote it all down, but they were selected by Jesus Christ, trained by Jesus Christ, and commissioned by Jesus Christ for that task. And as we saw in Second Peter, they were, as they wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know the risen Christ because they wrote of the risen Christ. Scripture and Scripture alone is sufficient to reveal the Jesus of history. And when we find Jesus in the Scripture, that that quest for the historical Jesus is over. We, We found him. And when we found the historical Jesus and we bend the knee in worship and adoration of he who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification... So the resurrection event is, in fact, um, in real life. The shocking, glorious event is as real as the, the nose on my face. But, but we dare not leave it at that. We, we must do something with the risen Christ. We must believe. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, and by believing, have life in his name. Amen.